uh, which will be easy. And then I hope next week to actually be able to do 17 and 18 um, because we're going to really slow down when we get to chapter 19 to the remainder of the book. Um, that's the part you've been waiting on anyway, chapter 19 to the remainder of the book. And as we've said numerous times in the book of Revelation, the author is presenting a vision, and the author is frequently uh, backtracking and going over traveled territory again to make a point. Uh, that's why you have like multiple occurrences of presentations of the return of Christ in the book of Revelation. Uh, so as you make your way through the book of Revelation, there is a sense in which you can, can make your way a little quicker and quicker. Uh, where we're at in chapter 16 is we're going to see the last series of, of God's judgments to fall on planet Earth. Uh, you've already seen the, the seal judgments. You've already seen the trumpet judgments. Uh, in, in chapter 16, after you have a kind of interlude in chapter 15, you're going to see the, the, the bowl judgments. Uh, as I've mentioned before, uh, from the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments, they, they grow in intensity. Uh, with the seal, frequently as you were looking at those judgments falling on planet Earth, uh, you would see like a fourth of humanity affected. When you got to the trumpet judgments, you saw frequently like a third. It would say a third were affected. When you get to the bowl judgments, and the nature of bowl is to pour out. When you get to the bowl judgment, it is um, complete complete judgment. So uh, the, the three rounds of judgments do uh, intensify throughout throughout the uh, book of Revelation. So that's enough of a, um, well, not quite enough of an introduction. Let me say something else by way of introduction. Um, chapter, this is another good reason to do this quickly. When I deal with this section of the book of Revelation, I feel a little bit like the way C.S. Lewis felt after he finished the screw tape letters. You know, if you've read the screw tape letters, and I recommend it strongly to you to read annually, uh, but if you read the screw tape letters, you notice those are letters, uh, kind of fantasy fiction, letters written from the devil's point of view as to how to conquer us, how to tempt us, how to, how to overcome us. So when C.S. Lewis wrote those letters from the devil's point of view, you know, he had to get in a completely different mindset. You know, when the devil's writing those letters and he refers to the enemy, of course, who's he referring to? God. So C.S. Lewis had to kind of get into that, that devilish mindset to do the CS, to do the screw tape letters. And um, that's why he said afterwards he was so exhausted by it. Uh, people kept saying, continue, create some more letters. You know, that's the screw tape letters got him on the cover of Time magazine in 1947, and they kept begging him, his publishers kept begging him to do some more of that, but it just left him so drained, left him so exhausted. He finally, at the end of his life, uh, not far from 1963 when he died, he finally wrote one more, Screw Tape Proposes a Toast, but he just said it was always so exhausting and draining when he dealt uh, with, with theology and Bible and history and human existence from the devil's point of view. Well, these sections of the book of Revelation sort of do that to me. They're, they're exhausting. This is the third round of judgment. So, um, yeah, I'm kind of glad that we can kind of just read it and, 
let it sit there with us for a while. But I do also want to say I think it's very, very, very important that you pay attention to these types of Scripture. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people, they only want the love and the grace and the light and the mercy and the goodness that is there in the Bible in both Old Testament and New Testament, but they want to avoid the judgment, the harsh side of love, the painful side of love, God's holiness, God's righteousness. Uh, But of course, it's there too. They're probably there in equal amounts in Old Testament and New Testament um, because the Bible is more balanced than we are. Uh, We're not very balanced. We just want to do the the light, love, mercy, peace, grace, goodness uh, kind of stuff. And we ignore vast proportions of the Bible uh, because they are kind of downers to us. And they they offend us because it says we're not the ones who are righteous. And we're not the ones who are by nature holy. So it's important to pay some attention. I know there are lots of pulpits in America that just avoid uh, passages like this in the Bible like the plague. And that's an appropriate image. You're going to see plagues in this section. But it's important if you're going to live a balanced Christian life, you need to understand both. Uh, remember, who, who, who is it in the Bible that teaches more about hell than anyone else? Jesus. People love to attribute the doctrine of hell to that horrible old St. Paul. But he didn't say anywhere near the amount that Jesus said about hell. So to be balanced, you've got to have both uh, the tender side of God's love and the harsh side of God's love. Because God is righteous. God is just. God can be long-suffering. God can give us uh, millennia to repent and come to God. But at some point, justice demands that God does something to uh, punish the Christ rejectors in the world. And that's what you see when you look at these kind of judgment passages. So, before you get to chapter 16, now this is heavy-duty theology. Before you get to chapter 16, there's chapter 15. Look at chapter 15. This is uh, sort of an introduction to... um, to the, to the final round of judgments. And you've seen this throughout the book. There are these interludes that keep showing us where we are, uh, how we are protected, um, the church in heaven um, being secure. Uh, that's what you see in chapter 15. So look at chapter 15. And I'm going to do this rather quickly, uh, which is not my style, but I'm going to do this rather quickly. Um, verse 1. Then I saw another sign or you can translate that symbol. Then I saw another symbol in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is what? Finished or completed. This is the last round of judgments. Verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass. So here we're in heaven. I, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those, those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We, we, we talked about the beast from the sea. We talked about the beast from the land. We talked about um, uh, the false prophet. We did all that in chapter 13. Well, here are the people that... that did not allow themselves to be conquered uh, by the, the false prophet and the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, the powers of dominion in this world that are anti-God. This is a picture of where those who refuse to allow themselves to be conquered by the beast are. Now, they may have been killed by the beast, 
but they did not allow the beast to conquer them. That's why you see them here in heaven. Uh, they're there here. They're there with this sea of glass. You met that sea of glass back in chapters three, chapters four, and chapters five. Here you see that same sea of glass that's before the throne of God mingled with fire, because this is a passage about judgment. So here you see the people who have died in in the faith in heaven those who stayed true to God in heaven. In verse 3, you see what they're doing, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, um, and we saw the song of the Lamb first in chapter 5. Uh, here it is again. This is the song of redemption, the song of deliverance. Uh, that's very much like the song of Moses that they sang after being uh, delivered through the Red Sea. Here's the, our song of deliverance that we're singing in heaven. Again, the book of Revelation is very much a book about worship and what we'll be doing in heaven. We're going to be doing a lot of worship and singing in heaven. So that's why I keep encouraging you to, when you show up on Sunday mornings, that's your practice for heaven. So I encourage you to sing. Give me something joyful to look at as I'm watching you sing or not on Sunday mornings. Uh, This is how you practice for heaven. So here's the song of the Lamb. Um, And notice the theme behind the Song of the Lamb. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Because you're getting ready to see a cycle of judgments again, the harshest cycle of judgments. It's easy to say, well, you know, God wouldn't do that. God couldn't do that. God shouldn't do that. Well, here's the answer. Um, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Verse 4, who will not fear or reverence, O Lord, and glorify your name? Well, again, the book of Revelation has answered that, and chapter 16 is going to answer that. Chapter 16 is going to show you that even with the intensity of the judgments that come in chapter 16, there will still be many who will not repent or glorify God. They will maintain and become harder um, at their Christ rejection. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Uh, we're the ones smart enough to do that now voluntarily. Uh, what, what I think the authors are getting at here, there'll come a point where all nations will worship God. You can bend your knee now voluntarily, joyfully, or you can bend your knee at some point at the end of human history uh, when you'll be forced to bend your knee. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, what God does is righteous. You know, I'm sure what you're getting ready to see God do would not win popular vote in this culture. They would condemn God for doing it. But that's why this song is telling you they're righteous. They are true. They are just. Verse 5. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent, or tabernacle, of witness in heaven was open. Again, we're still in heaven. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels and the seven plagues. And, of course, when you see the phrase plagues, your mind should go back to the book of Exodus and the plagues that you saw uh, that was delivered on Egypt there in the book of Exodus. What you're going to see in chapter 16 are plagues like those that were delivered on the people of Egypt, but these are going to be like those plagues on steroids. And you see where these plagues are coming from. They're coming from heaven coming from the throne room, uh, the sanctuary of the tabernacle, the throne room. Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures, and we met them way back in chapter uh, 1, actually, four living creatures symbolic of the people of God gathered in heaven. Uh, The four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Um, The Greek word there for bowl really 
it's a specific kind of bowl. We would probably use the word saucer, sort of like what your sandwich was on, a saucer. And that's pretty important because it can be poured out quickly. It can be poured out completely as opposed, as opposed to a deep bowl or something. This is more like a saucer. This is a specific kind of bowl. We know that from the Greek word here. So there's seven angels, seven golden bowls or saucers full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Your mind there should go back to Isaiah 6. Filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here's the, here's the, the period immediately preceding the end. Uh, the, the massive judgments on planet earth. Again, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, the judgments are, are, are given by God to call people to repentance. And some do, a lot don't. Um, so these are getting ready to be poured out on earth. Um, again, if you were to let pop culture construct a vision of God, it would not include this. But the Jewish-Christian vision of God uh, is a very balanced vision, uh, both uh, tender love and harsh love, both mercy and justice. Uh, we, we have never, till chapter 16, we really have never gotten what we deserve. We've only gotten mercy from God up to this point. Uh, what will happen eventually, though, uh, God's justice will prevail and we will get what we deserve and, and at that point, we're either in Christ or not in Christ. If you're in Christ and you've been seeing all the promises, you're going to see another beatitude in chapter 16, what's promised to those who are in Christ. Um, but this judgment will fall on all the Christ rejectors on planet Earth. So here, here they come. Uh, and I just want you to kind of see this. This is a vision. I want you to feel this. It's meant to be felt. Uh, this text, because it is a vision, is not so much meant to be analyzed as to be experienced. It's, it's not so much meant to be analyzed as it is to motivate, to motivate us to repentance. Verse 1, then I heard a loud voice, God's voice, from the temple. God speaks from the temple, and this is a heavenly temple, telling the seven angels, go, go and pour out on the earth and the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Remember the seals were loosed and revelation happened. The trumpets announced and judgments began. With these bowls, the judgments are being poured out. Verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Um, in other words, these these sores didn't get poured out on the Christ followers, only on those who bore the mark of the beast, bore the image of the beast, you know, uh, bore the image of the beast more than they bore the image of God, uh, were, were more al aligned to the beast, the powers of domination in this world, the powers of empire in this world, than they are to the lamb, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and they worshiped uh, the powers of this world, the beast. And, and they get they get this first bowl full of judgment sores. Verse three: The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every every living thing died that was in the sea. Um, can you imagine what the smell would have been like? 
as the dead fish who couldn't survive in the blood, blood-like sea, uh, kind of float to the top. Um, that's the second judgment. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. You had the seas last time, here's the springs of water. And they become blood, blood-like. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters. Do you know that there's an angel in charge of the waters? I heard the angel that's in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Again, lest you think God's not being fair or just or righteous in doing this, these songs just keep um, penetrating the actions. God is just. He is the holy one. And he's fair in doing this. Verse 6, For you have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they, not us that are in Christ, but it's what they deserve. So again, book Revelation is given to, to help us hang on when we don't want to hang on, to accept martyrdom if that's required of us. And again, you've heard me say multiple times, more people died for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than any other century in human history. I'm sure that number will be outdistanced in the 21st century. Uh, Boko Haram just told all the Christians in northern Nigeria to get out. I'm surprised that there's any still there after the way they've been slaughtered. Um, so what you see in the book of Revelation is um, that we're, we, are, we are encouraged to stay true, even if it means martyrdom. But here you see God, God revenging uh, those who martyred uh, his people, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. We have only gotten what we've we've never gotten what we deserve. We just get mercy from God right now. Uh, but there'll come a time uh, God's justice demands that we will get what we deserve. Verse seven. And I heard the altar saying. And this is the altar you met back in chapter 7 where the martyrs were underneath the altar. Remember that? Asking God, how long, O God, O Lord, do, do your people have to endure this? I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's the 55th time God's been referred to in the book of Revelation as the Almighty. But again, true and just are your judgments. You know, even, even in the first century, uh, there were people who did not like this image of God. And they would love to take their little scissors and cut this out of the Bible. Um, and that's why you see these songs continuing to argue that this is true, this is just, this is righteous. The holiness of God demands that at some point that this happens. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Now this is serious global warming right here. Verse 9, they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God. Again, um, all of these judgments that we've seen thus far have been for the purpose of calling people to repentance. But, you know, the same sun that can melt ice cream can harden clay. Um, you know, it's kind of up to us whether we not let life harden our hearts or whether we let life soften our hearts. Um, these people are choosing to continue to curse the name of God, um, and they acknowledge the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. You've seen that throughout the book of Revelation. All of this is for the purpose of God's great, great love, God's mercy, calling people to himself, calling them to repentance. And some people 
just refuse. Uh, verse 10, the fifth angel poured out on uh, out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Uh, whatever you want to say is the center of beastly domination, the center of satanic power in the world. Uh, that probably changes from culture to culture, changes throughout history. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. Sometimes, um, I mean, I've never experienced this, I'm told, sometimes if you're hurting so badly in one part of your body, you may actually bite your tongue or something to d- divert the pain somewhere else, to be able to focus on something else. So these people are in such anguish, they gnaw their tongues because they've been plunged into darkness. Um, and yeah, I, I, you know, we, we've had experiences what happens when the electrical grid messes up and, you know, half of New York City goes in the darkness and it doesn't end well. Well, here's a sort of supernatural darkness. And people forever have looked for naturalistic ways to sort of help God out here and to try to say this can happen because, I mean, like the red algae stuff in the ocean that can cause the fish to die. You know, I've read all that stuff, but I think from a theological spiritual point of view, that's not what's important here. What's important here is God is doing this to call people to repentance. Uh, These are symbols, but make sure you see the the reality behind the symbol. Uh, The reality behind these symbols are probably worse than the symbols can even express. Um, You know, it's it's not, it's it's above my pay grade to know how God's going to do this, but we see the judgment coming. Um, but again, they gnawed their tongues in anguish, and again, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. You know, it's really interesting. You can turn on the television now, and this has happened in the last generation. You can turn on television or go to any movie, almost any movie you want to go to, and you will hear people curse God. Um, that didn't happen 30-plus years ago. Uh, it's part of our culture now. So, yeah, that's how some people respond when bad things happen. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. So we're in the Iran-Iraq area at this point, the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. So you're getting ready to see just at the end of this section, uh, the battle, the so-called battle of Armageddon, but you see the preparation here uh, the kings from the east. Now, in the Roman era, they, they were greatly terrified by the Parthians. They thought that when their, when their society was destroyed, the Parthians would come from the east to do it. Well, now we're not worrying about the Parthians. Western civilization has other people we worry about from the east now. Uh, but whatever these people may be, whoever they may be, they're, 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 they're indicative of the powers of this earth, the kingdoms of this world, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-the kingdom of God. So they're, 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 they're preparing to do battle, to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and the mouth of the beast, and the mouth of the false prophet. We saw those people in chapters 11, 12, 13. Uh, we were introduced to them. Uh, spirits, unclean spirits like frogs. And in case you've forgotten what those are early in the book of Revelation, verse 14 tells you they're demonic spirits. These are demonic spirits that are let loose on the earth, performing signs. You've already been told multiple times uh, the enemy, 
uh, can perform signs and wonders, and that can delude some people, uh, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. I want you to notice something here. They're assembled for battle, just assembled for battle. Um, and that's, um, again, uh, God the Almighty. Uh, look at verse 15. Here's another one of those Beatitudes. And how, how many Beatitudes are there in the book of Revelation? This goes back to the first chapter. You may not remember. How many Beatitudes, blessings are, are there in the book of Revelation? Seven, yeah, that's always a good guess, seven. There's a perfect number, perfect number of Beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Here's number three, by the way. Uh, it's a parenthetical statement, verse 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Jesus actually said that. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen and exposed. Blessed are those who are aware. Again, interpret this spiritually. Blessed are those who are aware and are clothed in Christ. I mean, when we theologically start talking about being clothed, we're not talking about, you know, something comes out of New York City. When we talk about being clothed, we're talking about being clothed in Christ, clothed with the garments of Christ's righteousness um, so that God can see Christ when God sees us. So stay awake and make sure you're clothed in Christ. Blessed are those of you that stay awake, uh, that, can, that, that are sensitive to the age, that's paying attention to what's going on, and keep your garments on. Stay clothed in Christ. That's your third beatitude. Anyway, back to, now to the... the, the, the the judgment, verse 16. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So here is the so-called famous battle of Armageddon. Um, Armageddon means Har, Har Megiddo, Mount of Megiddo. Uh, there is a Mount Megiddo, uh, sort of in the north-central section of Judea, Samaria, Um it has been the, the location of multiple, multiple, multiple battles uh, going all the way from um, post-Davidic times, uh, like First, Second Chronicles, all the way through World War One. There have been battles between the British and the Ottoman Empire um, in, in the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, so when the biblical mindset is thinking about a place where the last battle should happen, uh, you can about guarantee they're going to say, the Valley of Megiddo, uh, the Mount of Megiddo, Har, that's Mount in Hebrew, Har, Megiddo, Har, Megiddo, Ar, Megiddo. Um, some of you were there with me about a week and a half ago. Uh, we, you know, we saw the we saw the Jezreel Valley, uh, the Valley of Eshkelon, the, the the Mount of Megiddo, that that wide plain. Uh, remember when we were there atop uh, the Mount of Precipice, uh, outside of Nazareth, where you can get that wonderful view, and and just just turn your head and see enough views to talk about. 20 different Bible stories. Uh, we were looking, overlooking the valley of, of Megiddo at that point. That's been the uh, um, that's the place where major battles happen in biblical literature. So you hear a lot in pop culture about the Battle of Armageddon. Don't you notice something here? Because this is really important theology. So it says they they go forth prepared for battle, and they assembled there at the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And then verse 17 runs on to the next judgment. The seventh angel poured out his bowl in the air, and the loud voice out of the temple says, It is done. Just want to point out to you, there's no battle described here. They assemble for battle at Armageddon. There's no battle here. 
Um, and that's significant theology. Uh, when we get to chapter 19, you'll, you'll see why there's no battle here. When the forces of anti-God, anti-Christ, come against the forces of God, Jesus doesn't need a bazooka. He really doesn't. Uh, you will see in chapter 19, it only takes the word of his mouth to defeat the enemy. That's why it's a little sub-Christian to think that God has to bring out the armaments and fight the enemy. So that's why it's, it's rather a misnomer to say the battle of Armageddon. There's no battle here. Uh, they, they assemble for battle. They come after the people of God. But there's no description of a battle. Because when God comes to fully redeem history, fully redeem God's people, he's not going to have to do it with the weapons of this world. And that's why this is sort of a, an important theological distinction here. So there really is no description of a battle. They, they think there's going to be a battle, but God doesn't have to fight really hard to defeat evil when the time comes. That's why verse 17 just runs on to the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple. That's God again, temple that's in heaven, from the throne. He's the one on the throne. Say, remember the, I said way back when, one of the major points of the book of Revelation over and over, it's who is on the throne? The word throne keeps reoccurring in the book of Revelation. You better make sure you know who's on the throne. There are a lot of people who contend for that throne. Uh, but the book of Revelation wants to make sure you know who's on the throne. So here's a loud voice comes out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. It is finished. Um, this is when, hopefully your mind at that point goes back to Golgotha, crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus on the cross. He says the same thing. Testeloi in Greek, he says, it is finished, it is done. Uh, that's when, that was, that was D-Day, uh, when Jesus defeated the enemy, when Jesus defeated evil on the cross, and he could declare it is finished. That was D-Day. Here's VE Day. You know, I've used that analogy frequently. Uh, you know, D-Day, everything was predetermined and preset. The victor was determined at Calvary. Jesus defeated all enemy. We became the Easter people. Um, but what we've been in since Calvary is the mopping up exercise. The period between D-Day, D-Day pretty much determined the outcome of World War II, uh, the victory of D-Day, that invasion. But, you know, they still had to make it all the way to Berlin. They had to make it to VE Day. What does VE Day stand for, by the way? I'm, I'm just amazed at how little American history some people know. What does VE Day stand for? Victor in Europe. Yeah, some of you live through that. VJ Day is what? Victor in Japan. Yeah. Um, so you have to go from D Day to V to VE Day, um, and that's what you see here. Here's the same. It is done because this is a VE Day at this point. The work of Christ is being completed. All of creation is being redeemed. Uh, verse 18, And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since, since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. Um, you should think Mount Sinai at this point, all the stuff that happened when the law was given. Think about the great earthquake that Matthew tells you about at the crucifixion. Uh, this is the great act of God here. And then if you look at verse 19, the great city. Now, chapters 17 and 18 are going to be the detail about the great city. Uh, the great city are the powers of this world, the 
the powers and principalities of this world, the structures of this world, the empire, empires of this world, the kingdoms of this world that are arrayed against God. And we're going to get to look at those in 17, chapter 17 and 18. But here you, you see why we're going to look at them in chapter 17 and 18. Because here it's declared the great city... Uh, the world against God was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the Great. That becomes the name in chapter 17 and 18 of the, the city of this world. Um, uh, Henry Macpeace Thackeray called it Vanity Fair. You can call this world Vanity Fair. You can call this world the Great Babylon, whatever you want to call it. We've had a lot of images throughout Christian history as, as to how we describe, what metaphors we use for describing this world. Here in Revelation, it's going to become the great city, the cities of the nations. God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of, of the wine of the fury of his wrath. This is God judging um, the city of the city of Babylon, the powers of this the powers of this world arrayed against God. And verse twenty, and every island fled away, and no mountain were to be found. And great hailstones, about one hundred pounds, each fell from heaven on the people. Um, each fell from heaven on the people. And notice what they do. What do they do? They curse God. Even at this point, they don't repent. Even at this point, they don't flee to God. Um, you know, it's amazing how completely stupid some human beings can be. I'm always amazed, and I'm always grateful. I know people make fun of it. I'm grateful, you know, when we've seen incidences in history, like all the people who came to church after 9-11, all the people who came to church during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That says some people have good sense. When the bad things start happening, you need to flee to God. But there's massive numbers of the human family that do not have that kind of good sense. You know, they flee away from God. Their hearts become hardened, and they curse God. Why does God allow this? Um, you know, God has been, you know, God has been merciful. Whenever this is up to this point in human history, God will have been completely merciful up to this point. Up to this point, the human family never ever received what it deserved. And then finally, when God gives the human family what the human family deserves, there will be people who will say, you know, God's not fair. And he's been gracious and, and merciful for millennia at this point. And uh, whenever we get what we deserve, there will be people who curse God and say God's not fair. And they curse God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Okay. I did it, didn't I? Two chapters. Um and it's all because you've hung in there with me for several months, and most of these topics we've talked about at length um, up to this point. Um, and we talked about this about as long as I can stand talking about this without just having to go home and go to bed. Um, but it's important that we talk about this. Again, don't ever go to the Bible just so you can win at Bible Trivia Pursuit or win on Jeopardy. You ever notice they always leave the Bible categories to the end? Those brilliant people seem to never know anything about the Bible categories. Um, but anyway, that's not why we go to the Bible. We go to the Bible for the sake of godliness. We go to the Bible to call us to holiness. We go to the Bible for the sake of salvation and deliverance. We go to the Bible to hear God speak to us. So we don't go to the Bible for information. We go to the Bible for transformation. Uh, we go to the Bible for motivation to be the kind of people that God's calling us to be. And um, even a text like this rather is rather motivating to me. 
because it reminds me just how merciful God's been to me. So, that's good.